0: We're going to continue in our study in 1 in Corinthians, obviously. Um, <clears throat> we've been trucking right along pretty good, and uh, I've certainly been enjoying it. But uh, we're continuing, and uh, what we've been doing is analyzing Paul's defense of scriptural service in chapter 12, where he corrects the Corinthians' <clears throat> corrupted views of, you know, the Christians' spiritual gifts, along with the implementation of those gifts, especially during worship services where, you know, Christians are always utilizing their spiritual gifts and exercising them, but especially in the context of a worship service where we use them to serve one another. And the Corinthians just had this all messed up. And so we've been focused on that particular admonition and correction from him. We've been focused on our third point in kind of a little mini series here, and that third point is just to remind you the diversity of spiritual gifts. We've been walking through nine spiritual gifts that Paul listed in the passage we've been studying. Last Sunday, we looked at miracles, prophecy, and discernment. In And discernment would be um, the ability to distinguish truth from error, something that would be of the Holy Spirit and not so we looked at those three things in verses 10A to 10C, or just verse 10. And this morning, we're going to focus on the, really just the next spiritual gift. We're focusing on the, the last two, but we have to deal with the second to last firstly. And um, as I said last week, these, these two that are listed here, especially the one that we're going to look at today and probably into next week, because there's just so much that needs to be said about it. Um, Last week I mentioned that it's probably and easily the most controversial and debated of all the spiritual gifts. Um, And I also mentioned that that quotation from New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, who was actually an Assemblies of God minister. um, But he had said that this particular gift that we're starting to look at today is the problem child of the spiritual gifts. So uh, it should be... uh, Exciting today to to look at this and uh, been praying that I would be calm and cool and collected because this stuff really ramps me up. So today I just want to just want to try to uh, minister the word in a way that uh, isn't on steroids, so to speak. Uh, So if you guys could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, in particular, right in the middle verse 10 D. Um, I'll go ahead and pray for us and then we'll identify the next gift on Paul's list and then we'll begin our exposition of it Father thank you for this time and You know these things are in the word and um, If we're going to be expositors of the word and students of the word We have to deal with all of the subjects of the word as we move from line to line and this is one of those uh, instances or doctrinal subjects or spiritual gifts that's going to require, I think, more TLC and um, more exposition and more focus than the others. And that's certainly because of the widespread confusion surrounding it. And so, Lord, um, just give me the grace to preach in a way that is gracious and Uh, Not in a way that is trying to convince people of my particular view of this gift or some of the other gifts, but that is persuasive uh, because your word says what it says. And so the authority here isn't Pastor Phil, it never is, it is the scripture and so may I preach your scripture and may your congregation today hear your scripture and come to and draw proper conclusions according to your word and not according to any of my persuasion or anything else. So Lord, uh, we just want to be taught by you today. And I think all of us desire to, to uh, align ourselves with the word of God, with the Bible, with the scriptures on the subject. We don't, as Christians want to be off on any subject. And so just help us to, to see it plainly today, to hear it plainly today, to believe it with sincere, humble hearts, to embrace the truth, and to begin to live it out in love. And so we commit the morning to you, Lord, and I commit myself to you more so today than in the past. (laughs) Help me to uh, be gentle. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we can look at the next, we can kind of pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at the next spiritual gift on Paul's list, and that would be H, and it would be tongues, tongues, of course, verse 10D, and just so you know, I had every intention of going further today and realize that so much needs to be said about this that it would have been impossible to handle it all today. Sermons are already long. Um, we'd have to serve a lunch and a dinner. If we kept going, so. And Paul says it like this. He's been talking about the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to each believer. And he says here, to another, various kinds of tongues. That's the way that he says it, the way that it appears in God's word, the way that it is framed. Now, in previous sections, we were introduced to several of what I've been calling ceasing gifts, gifts that have ceased, uh, gifts that were given to the apostles and a few others for the purpose of authenticating the gospel but would terminate or cease upon the completion of Scripture. That's a good definition of what a ceasing gift is. It's given by the Lord through the Spirit for a temporary season until a desired goal achieved that's what a ceasing gift is Um, these unique ceasing spiritual gifts they've served as a kind of intermediary between the verbal word and the written word and once the written word the Bible especially the New Testament because the Old Testament was already in place but when the New Testament completing all of God's revelation was complete the spirit then stopped granting these ceasing gifts They were no longer needed by Christians, no longer needed by the church, and so they ceased, according to the Lord's timing through the Spirit. Point being, here in verse 10D, Paul is introducing his readers to yet another ceasing gift, various kinds of tongues. Yes, I would categorize tongues, the true biblical tongues, not people's imagination of what that might mean or what they think it, it is, but the truest sense, biblical, which is what we'll discover today, that has absolutely ceased. And I don't say that because I'm a cessationist. That's someone who believes some of these gifts have ceased and they maybe they should just do that because others do that or it's part of the Reformed tradition. I think that no matter what you do, You have to be aligned with the scripture regardless of your theological tradition. And if your theological tradition tells you to be something, fine. But if it's not backed by scripture, it's not fine. So, and I think what happens today is when you start to express a view that you have, people will throw you into a theological camp and dismiss your beliefs because they think it belongs to that and that alone. I am here today... To the best of my ability, which is zero ability, I will say to the best of the Spirit's ability, which is perfection, to proclaim to you what the Word of God says about this today. This is not me. This is not a cessationist leaning. This is the meaning according to Scripture. So in order to really understand what Paul says here and what he means by tongues, we cannot really look at this sentence or wherever else it appears in just the English. Okay, we, we can't do that because the English language is very limited and sometimes translators employ words that capture the meaning of the Greek word but don't capture it to still and cease all speculation. And I think that's a classic case of what we have here. So we must look at it in the original language, in the language in which this text was actually written, which is kone or just Greek. The Greek word for tongues is glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. And the O is hyphenated, glossa, glossa. That is the Greek word. And what it means, literally, is human languages. That's what it means. In fact, there might be some English translations that just don't use the word tongues there, and might just use the word languages, which I think would be a better rendering. Because when we think of tongues, we think of something kind of beyond normal human languages, don't we? So not criticizing English translations, but just challenging the idea here and really what glosa means is human languages and uh, my point is to show you that same meaning from everywhere in scripture glosa happens to be the word the greek word that we get the word glossary from it makes sense glosa glossary they're very similar right A glossary is an alphabetical list with meanings of of the words or phrases in a text that might be difficult to understand, say, for instance, a foreign language. So, quickly, we're talking about human languages. So now I just want to speak briefly on what the gift of tongues would then be, and then we'll talk about that more next week. Tongues, as a spiritual gift, was the supernatural ability to speak in unknown human languages. That's the gift. That's what Paul is referring to. That's what glosa means. The one who possessed this gift, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, could speak languages, literally, supernaturally speak languages that he had never known or never learned. This is always has been the biblical, historical, and orthodoxical understanding of the gift of tongues. In other words, this is the view, what I've just defined and described, the supernatural ability to speak in human languages that you have not learned or, or learned or known. That is a definition, has been the view of the church since the incarnation of the church on the day of Pentecost. It's always been that. It's never been anything but that. And right now you're thinking, well, there's others that define it differently. Yes. But traditionally and orthodoxically, historically, biblically, the view has always been a supernatural gift that enables one to speak in a human language they do not know. It's never been anything but that. It still isn't anything but that, regardless of people's opinions or various interpretations. It's always been that. Now, Building on context for what Paul is arguing here, the mystery religions, and we talked about that quite a bit a few weeks ago, but the mystery religions of the ancient Near East used tongues in the worship of their various deities. Whatever those false deities were, Baal or Baal, Molech, all of those ancient gods of the Old Testament, um, Asheroth, You know, whatever whatever false god, Zeus, those are the mystery religions that have false gods. And in their worship, not in every expression of the mystery religions, the ancient mystery religions, but in a great many of them, there was a kind of tongue that was used in adoration or worship of that deity. But the tongues the ancient pagans spoke were not literal human languages, but literal types of babble and gibberish. To achieve a, this is the thought, to achieve a, the transcendent state of oneness with a revered deity, we call that nirvana, right? Remember the group? That's what they were named after. The 90s grunge group, right? Smells like teen spirit, smells like false tongues. That's the better translation. <laughs> To achieve a transcendent state of oneness with the deity that you are in love with and you think is helping you, the worshiper had to reach the highest level of emotionalism or ecstaticism through making the same sounds over and over and over with ever-increasing intensity. This is what they did. This practice, if you can believe this, and you should, because it his, it's a historical reality, and I talked about this again a few weeks ago. This practice of speaking syllables, but they're, they don't form actual human words, of speaking them rapidly, it's like a rapid-fire gibberish with an intense intensity that is increasing with a culmination of some kind of an emotional outburst or something of that. effect. this practice dates all the way back to the Tower of Babel, all the way back which is the literal birthplace of all false and mystery religion. In Paul's day, in the Corinthians day, these pagan tongues were still widely in use, especially in Corinth. That city had seven major pagan temples. The Temple of Apollo. That is like the the king Greek god, the the Zeus of of Greek religion. They had the temple of Apollo. They had the temple of Aphrodite. They had the temple of Poseidon. They had the temple of Hermes. They had the temple of Venus Fortuna. They had the temple of Isis. They had the temple of Pantheon. That was a larger temple that represented all of the Greco-Roman gods. And they had the temple of Doom. Indiana Jones. Now, point B—they didn't have the Temple of Doom. That's Hollywood. But they did have all these other temples. I mean, there was a temple on every corner. You've heard people say there's a church on every corner. Back in ancient Corinth, what temple are you going to go to? Well, there's one on every corner. Now, if you entered one of these temples, you would find carnal congregates worshiping the patron deity through gluttonous feasting. Through drunkenness, through prostitution, through chanting, and through rapid-fire gibberish, through tongues, these facilities were therefore often very loud and even like deafening during certain times. Like if you went in, it was just this roar and rumble of gibberish, and you you couldn't even hear yourself think in there. And so you would just join in. This is the context in which Paul writes his admonition, his correction, his instruction here to another various kinds of tongues. And he was referring to actual human languages such as Greek, such as Latin, such as Hebrew, And such as the one that was literally spoken by every Jew. Hebrew had kind of fallen off by then. Every Jew in that time was speaking Aramaic. What are these four languages? They are the language of that particular part of the world. He is referring to those languages, but more particularly to languages that were not learned by the Corinthians that they could somehow speak at particular times, not all the time. It's not like you walk down the street speaking French. By the way, the Lord never gave the gift of French. (laughs) Well, he probably has, so a Frenchman could hear the gospel. But these are ancient languages that Paul is referring to, but they're unlearned. Now, the languages of that territory, on the day of Pentecost, uh, a handful of Galileans, I'm giving you more context, a handful of Galileans, there weren't very many that were there. I'm sure there was a lot of Galileans, but there was a handful of unique, special Christian Galileans. And they spoke about the mighty words of God in in their native tongue, which would have been Aramaic. But there were a vast amount or multitude of foreign peoples that were there to worship the same God during the same Pentecostal or Pentecost festival. And they were there and and, and they did not speak Aramaic. And yet they are hearing the mighty works of God being proclaimed by these Galileans in Aramaic. They're hearing it, but they're not hearing it in Aramaic. They're hearing it in their languages, Scythian or whatever the language was. that my friends is what the gift looks like when it's in use and all these foreign people that are there are hearing in their own tongues as these this body of people is speaking in what they're speaking in their tongue and yet everyone is understanding and those who do not know that tongue and so And the people that are hearing it in their tongue are literally blown away. They say, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? How is this even possible? Acts 2, 4 to 12. And you know, in the same text, someone says, I guess they must be drunk. Okay. It is true that drunkenness will lead to unique, special tongues. (laughs) But not the kind that are discernible or even human. Amen? Amen? This is what Paul has in mind. He's got in mind here as he proclaims the word of god to this very very confused and even volatile body he's got the pagan tongues in mind because that's the context he has pentecost in mind because that's the breakthrough where god unleashes this spiritual gift to get the gospel out to people that don't know certain languages he's got all of this in mind he has a proper definition of tongues he uses the word glosso nothing else That's what he has in mind in verse 10d. Tongues is human languages. It is not babble. It is not gibberish. um, And it is not several other things we'll discuss in a moment. In fact, when glossa or glossa appears in other parts of this epistle, by the way, it appears many times. If you just do a quick word search on Tongues, and you'll find 15 or so, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more appearances in 1 Corinthians, but it carries the same meaning every time. Okay? Uh, Let me give you some examples. Chapter 12, verse 28, various kinds of glosa. Tongues, languages, the meaning. 1230, do all speak with glosa? Tongues, languages. 13, verse 1, If I speak in the glossa, tongues, languages, is the meaning. Chapter 13, verse 8. As for the gift of glossa, tongues, languages, comma, it will cease. Cease. Chapter 14, verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in glossa. And we'll find out why he wants that next week. Glossa, meaning here, tongues, languages. Chapter 14, verse 6. If I come to you speaking in glossa, tongues, languages, chapter 14, verse 18, I speak in glossa, tongues, languages, more than all of you, chapter 14, verse 21, by people of strange heteroglossos, that's just a pluralized version of of glossa, he's saying if I speak in strange languages or tongues. Chapter 14, verse 22, glossa, tongues, languages, listen to this, are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. We're going to need to get to the bottom of that next week, aren't we? Hmm, what? Chapter 14, verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in glossa, tongues, languages, and he goes on to say, won't unbelievers think you're nuts? Yes, they will. We'll talk about that again next week. Chapter 14, verse 39. Do not forbid speaking in glosa tongues, languages. This is a a handful of examples from this very epistle. First Corinthians. Same word, same Greek word, same structure same qualities, whether it's pluralized or not, same exact meaning, always meaning the same thing. Languages. Glossa has the same meaning in other parts of the New Testament, okay? Examples, Acts chapter two, verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit they began to speak in other glossa, tongues, languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look, I just want to say I am not into bringing praise to myself, but you have no idea how much work this was to figure this out. Goodness, I had to look up every, the meaning of, every, of glossa, every appearance. It was just like, this is laborious. Somebody needs to fix my AC. And he did it. I'm sitting here looking up all these verses, and I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking in the strongs, I'm looking everywhere to make sure that when I say this is the word, that it is the word. That way, if you go and be a Berean and go look up these appearances of tongues and look in the strongs, you can find out it's the exact same word, because I have to be right about this. So I don't even know why I broke through to say that, only because the other day I was like, oh my gosh, how many more? Well, you're the one doing it. That's true. You're doing this to yourself. Acts 2.11, right? We just did 2.4. Acts 2.11, I'm giving you examples of glossa meaning languages in the New Testament. Acts 2.11, both Jews and proselytes, that's converts, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own glossa tongues, languages, the mighty works of God. I just used that verse. Acts 10.46, they were hearing them speaking in glosa, tongues, languages, and extolling God. In order order for those who were hearing this to, to know that these people were extolling and praising God, they would have to be able to understand the language that's being spoken. So there was both the tongue and the translation there in that situation. Acts chapter 19 verse 6, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in glossa, languages, tongues, and prophesying. Romans 14.1, every glossa will confess to God. This is uh, what he's talking about here. This is, remember, every tongue will confess to God. This is judgment day that Paul is talking about in 14.1 of Romans. On that day, every person will stand before God and give an account of their sins in their own glossa, in their own tongue, in their own language. That's the meaning. Philippians 2.11, every Glossa shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's tongue, to the glory of God the Father. Obviously, he's talking about the second advent when Jesus returns. When he comes back, every person will confess in their own glossa, their own tongue, their own language, that he is what? He is Lord, capital L. Revelation 5, 9. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and glosa. Every tongue, every language. Revelation 7, 9. By the way, there's a bunch of appearances in Revelation. 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples, and glosa, tongue. Every tribe and tongue. That's Languages, that's tongues, every glossa, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, so on and so forth. Revelation 11, verse 9, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and glossa. Tongues and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. This is speaking of judgment again, but it's glosa, people from every tribe and tongue. Glossa, language, tongue. Revelation thirteen, seven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and glosa, tongue, language, and nation. Revelation 14, 6. You guys are like, oh, Lord, we get the point. No, we don't. There's an absence and shortage of this kind of literal teaching. And that's why there's so much error. So bear with me. Revelation 14, 6. And I am far from done. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and glōssa, tongue, language, and people. Okay, so, so we have glōssa in 1 Corinthians, always meaning languages, human languages. We have it in the rest of the New Testament, always meaning human languages. And now we'll look at another resource. And this one is just so interesting. it got a refresher course on it. Glossa, this Greek noun, has the same meaning in the Septuagint. The Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, written about 285 to 246 before Christ. Okay? was under Egyptian King Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. He reigned from 285 to 246 BC. He literally commissioned a translation of the Hebrew Bible, right, into their language, into Greek, for the library that he was working on that had been originally built by his father. That is the Library of Alexandria. Right? His father, Ptolemy I, Soter was his name, he was the immediate successor of Alexander the Great, set up shop in Alexandria, Egypt, builds probably, I think at that time it was one of the seven great wonders of the world, but builds this unbelievable library. And his son, And he had like 12 sons. One of his sons here, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, comes along and he's now reigning in in his father's place. And he says, I want every tribe and tongue, every tribe and language to be represented in, in this phenomenal, never seen before library. And so he commissions people to translate the Old Testament from its original language, Hebrew, into the Greek language. How many of you have heard of Julius Caesar? That balloon head burned this beautiful library down <laughs> in 48 BC. He had a civil war going there and accidentally sent a bunker buster into the library and blew it to smithereens and they lost almost everything. It was Julius Caesar who did that. So this translation commission that's going to take the Old Testament and translated into Greek, it had 72 translators from Jerusalem who were sent to the island of Pharos to translate the Torah into Greek. The term Septuagint, it means 70, Greek word for 70. It refers to the 72 translators, six from each tribe of Israel involved in translating the Pentateuch, originally just the first five books from Hebrew into Greek, and they did this at the time that I'm telling you, 285 to 246. And then later, there were others who came along during the same century who f- completed the rest of the Old Testament into Greek. So this panel goes off to this island. Leave us alone. We're over here translating. They produced the fir- f- first five books. That's that's the, uh, the first five and uh, the Pentateuch. And then it's finished up by someone else later in the same century. This is how it plays out. What is the Roman numeral uh, for 70? It's L-X-X, and that's what the Septuagint is sometimes abbreviated as. The Septuagint, capital L, capital X, capital X. The Septuagint, now this is, this is just fascinating. Septuagint is the very first translation of the Hebrew Bible into another language. Did you know that? The very first translation of the Old Testament in its original language of Hebrew translated into a different tongue, a different language. Did you know this, that the Septuagint was used by Jesus in his teaching? There are over 150 quotes and paraphrases from our Lord from the Septuagint. Did you know, remember it was written long before Jesus came several hundred years, so Did you know that the Apostle Paul used the Septuagint in his teaching, especially when teaching Greeks? Did you know that the early church used the Septuagint for a long time? Greek was the predominant prevailing language of the land. We all think Hebrew, it was dying out just like Latin's dead today. Even Jews were speaking Hellenistic Greek and speaking Aramaic. The whole world in that particular area, that ancient world, had moved away from Hebrew. Greeks never spoke it, but they moved away from Hebrew toward Aramaic and Greek. And so it made total sense to have a translation of the Old Testament in Greek, because that was the language of the land. How vast and far was the Greek empire? How vast and far was the Roman empire? They all spoke the same language, it was massive. And so it makes total sense. But this guy, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, wanted it for his fancy library. Praise God. See how the providence of God works? He wants it as a showpiece, and it ends up becoming the main teaching tool of people like Jesus and Paul and the other apostles and the church. Philo and Josephus called the Septuagint equal to the Hebrew Bible. Same thing, just different language. And it would really have to be if Jesus was going to use it. Amen? That's the Septuagint. And this word, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Glossa is a Greek word. Languages and tongues are referred to in the Old Testament in Hebrew. So they have to be translated into Greek. And that word is glossa. Genesis 10, 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own glossa, tongue, language, by their clans, by their nations. Genesis 10, 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their glosa, tongue, language, their lands, and their nations. Psalm 81, verse 5. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a glosa, tongue, language. I had not known. Doesn't mean it was foreign to this world. It means it was foreign to this individual. It was a language of some people group that he did not know Isaiah 66 18 trust me this took a lot of work too to find all these references in the Old Testament somebody buy me an iced coffee after the service <laughs> Isaiah 66:18. I've already had enough coffee for I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and glossa every nation every tongue every language and they shall come and they shall see my glory. Ezekiel 3, 6. Many peoples and alloglossos. That's just another derivative of gloss, uh, glossos. It's uh, or glossos. It's another um, pluralization of it. Here it means strange tongues. Many peoples of alloglossos, strange tongues, languages, tongues. And a hard glossa, that's language, whose words you cannot understand. There it's used twice, but there is a variation of it in the first appearance. But it means the same thing. Do we not say to ourselves when we hear somebody speaking in a language that we're not very familiar with? That's a strange language. Hmm? We do say this to ourselves. And that's what is being said here In Ezekiel 3, 6, Daniel 3, 4, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and glossa, tongues and languages. Daniel 6, 25, remember we're in the Septuagint. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and glossa, languages and tongues that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. What an interesting thing to be coming from a pagan king. In Paul's point being, in Paul's epistles, in the rest of the New Testament, and throughout the Septuagint, the world's oldest and first translation of the Hebrew Bible into another language, Greek, Glossa always refers to human languages. Always. It is never used in any other way. There are only variations of it. Pluralizations. That is the meaning. Even with the pluralizations of this Greek noun, they all carry the same meaning. They do not deviate from this general meaning of human languages. Glossa, in all of its unique forms, which aren't a whole lot, but in a few, they always mean human language. Languages, it always means that. It can't mean anything else, just as dog means dog. Dog does not mean cat. Dog does not mean some foreign creature. Same thing. And now I can say why I labor this point. Because there are vast numbers of people, entire denominations, who who do name the name of Christ and yet speak in glossa tongues, which upon hearing, we immediately detect that they are not speaking in normal, intelligible human languages. That's why I belabor this point. Tongues can only mean that. And when you have someone saying, I speak in tongues and we know that it's, not a, it's literally not a human language, it's just gibberish or babble or something else, that's a false claim. They are saying, I, I have the supernatural gift of glossa. If they had it, they would be speaking in, in human languages they do not know and never learned. But that is not the case, amen? That's the point. If I show you the meaning of the word, From three resources from the entire New Testament, from Corinthians, and from the Septuagint, you should now know, no matter what, that it has to be a human language. It cannot be something else. A dog is not a giraffe. Starting to get fired up. Mellow. So when someone claims to have the supernatural, spiritual gift of tongues and It's not a human language. This is not biblical glossa. What is it then? It is, in my humble estimation, cleverly rehearsed gibberish that people try to pass off as biblical glossa. In the same circles that claim that this gift is something other than human languages and is still happening. In, in, in these exact same circles, they are taking time to teach people glosa. Glossa cannot be taught. It's a supernatural spiritual gift. You cannot teach someone a supernatural spiritual gift. It's either imparted by the spirit or not. Somebody can teach me French. That's a tongue. That's a human tongue. That, that's, that's me taking Babel or some other course online, and, or Spanish would be more appropriate for around here. We've got a lot of Spanish brothers and sisters and a lot of, a lot of Hispanic people in the area. That would be a more logical tongue. French, what would I do with that? Go into Quick Stop, wee oui, wee, oui, boo 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 boo, you know, I mean, <laughs> give to me, 32 ounce thirsty, you know, I mean, it's stupid. But Spanish would make much more sense. That is a real tongue, because that is a real language. That's a real language. That is something that I can learn as a skill. That is not what we are talking about here. We are talking about me busting out in Spanish, which I know nothing except a handful of bad words, which is sad. That would be me all of a sudden being before many Hispanics and proclaiming the gospel in English and they're hearing it in Spanish. So, so, so yes, you can learn a tongue, but you can't learn a supernatural spiritual gift. It's either given or not. So you have fake tongues... Why would anyone fake tongues? I I mean, well, the short answer would be because people do not understand that Scripture is both closed and sufficient. It's all we need. You see, tongues, in a sense, were revelatory. We don't need revelation. We got all the revelation we need. So I would say to be kind, it's because of an ignorance that they don't understand that the Bible is, is, is done It's complete, and it's sufficient for everything. Go back and read in 1 Timothy. It's sufficient. 2 Timothy, Titus, it's sufficient for all things. We don't need anything more. So I think there's an ignorance there of that. And I also think there is a massive attraction to things that are much bigger than us. If tongues was a supernatural gift, people are going to want that because it will authenticate maybe their ministries or be a draw to outsiders. Who knows? There's a a great many reasons why someone might practice that, but I think the general reason is just out of pure ignorance of what glosa means in the scripture and what the nature of spiritual gifts are and these sorts of things. I want to say this kindness in my heart. The scripture is closed and sufficient. Deuteronomy 4, 2, Proverbs 35 to 6, Revelation twenty two eighteen. 18. All three of those texts, beginning of the Bible, middle of the Bible, end of the Bible, do not add to or subtract from the word. It's done. Then, of course, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, where it talks about its perfect sufficiency to raise up the man or woman of God into maturity. I don't need somebody rambling on Babel. I don't need somebody prophesying over me. I don't, I don't need anything like that. I don't need those things to be who God has called me to be. They're not necessary. Now, if you challenge today's defenders of such non-human tongues, they will try to deflect by pointing to texts that allegedly support their view. Right? You, you, you tell somebody, look, that, that's not glosa. That's not real Biblical tongues that, that that you're presenting at your church and that you're practicing, uh, you know, holistically there and in your prayer closet and in these other places that that's not what the Bible says. And what they'll say is, well, OK, fine. Great. I understand it. You're a cessationist. Let me guess. You're also a Calvinist. You know, they go down their checklist of all these terrible things that I am. And uh, and so but they will sometimes try to take you to verses. And, and I want to deal with some of those verses that they'll take you to. They might slide you over to 1 Corinthians 14, 2. It says, for one who speaks in a glossa, a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So this particular verse is used by the supporters of the non-human tongues the angelic tongues the secret prayer closet tongues whatever you want to call it they say this verse teaches that the spiritual gift of tongues can be a secret non-human prayer language that a person can actually speak to God how many of you have heard of this explanation before Mm -hmm. how can you tell me I had one person tell me how can you tell me that I don't have a uh, my own prayer language to God I can say because glossa doesn't mean that ever, but this is the idea. They, they're drawing it from 1 Corinthians 14, too. They think that that verse literally proves that there is a secret, non-linguistic, non-human language that God gives as a spiritual gift that only can be spoken to God. That's what they believe The idea is that he or she that possesses this gift enters their little prayer closet or little secret place or whatever. And they utter these supernatural non-word words. And God hears and deciphers whatever they're saying for himself. And it's a worship to him. Now, there are two massive. There's many, but there's for time's sake, there's two massive problems with that kind of interpretation of that verse. First. The Greek word tongues is glossa. <laughs> what does it always refer to? Human languages. What are human languages? They are languages human beings speak and understand. And if there's a supernatural component to it, it's a language that's spoke by one and only understood through the power of the Holy Spirit and interpretation, but for the most part, they are intelligible human languages. Glossa always means that. By the way, that's the word that's used in 14.2. So we have a massive problem right off the bat, a a total and absolute disqualifier of that kind of interpretation based on the original language. Secondly... What is the purpose of the spiritual gift of tongues or any other spiritual gift? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we just studied that last week or the week before, it is given for the common good. What is the common good? To build up the body of Christ. If tongues are a secret prayer language that only God hears, and can understand, this would mean that when tongues are spoken, only God is built up. Does God need to be built up? Of course not. Since glosa, tongues, always refers to human languages, and since glosa tongues are meant to build up the body, Paul could not have been promoting some secret prayer language only God understands in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. It is an impossibility based on those two restrictions. In fact, in Scripture, there are no examples of people speaking to God in anything other than human languages. Now, I would give credit where credit is due. The Corinthians were certainly attempting to break this precedent by rambling on babble to Jesus. They were attempting to communicate to God through their own version of tongues, gibberish. And this, of course, did not earn Paul's approval, but earned them some very well-deserved corrections. Amen. If you challenge today's defenders of these non-human tongues, they might take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, which says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is one of the go-to verses for these defenders. Based on this verse, they claim that the spiritual gift of tongues... Can be even more than a secret prayer language between you and God. It can be the ability to speak in the languages of angels. There are, as before, two major interpretational problems, two massive problems with this interpretation. First, the Greek word for tongues is glosa. What does glosa always mean? Human languages. By the way, in chapter 13, verse 1, if I speak in the languages of men or the languages of angels, it's human languages that are in reference. You might say, well, he says the languages of angels. Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on. So the first problem with this is glosa, the meaning of glosa, it is human languages. Again, what are human languages? They are languages that humans use. Here's the second problem. (laughs) Nobody's thinking about this. What are angels? Invisible spirits that do not have physical bodies or mouths or tongues or larynxes or voice boxes or diaphragms or lungs to push out the words. What's happening is people are putting angels on the same level as us and they are nothing like us. They do not even have the muscles or elements or characteristics of one who would speak any language. They have no physical body, no mouth, no tongue, no larynx, no vocal cords, no diaphragm. Now this is not to say that angels cannot communicate. We know they can. Anyone who reads the Bible and gives it a cursory reading can see an angel talking to Mary, uh, an angel talking to Daniel. so we can't we're not going to say we're not un, we're, we're not willing to say that they do not or cannot communicate. It is to say that the absence of physical bodies and everything that is necessary for regular speaking obviously implies that an angelic language is not only unlikely but totally unnecessary. You following the logic? Sam Waldron wrote, Angels do not have bodies, tongues, or therefore spoken languages of their own. If angels are not physiologically equipped like human beings for speaking, why would anyone assume they have their own languages? Use logic. They are called ministering spirits sent out to serve. Hebrews 1.14, which means they do rather than speak. If they choose to speak, it would be supernatural since they do not have bodies and tongues and all of the necessary organs and components for such speech. They are not like us. Oh, and here's another thing. When we see people, again, you're reading the Bible, you're studying the Bible. Maybe you've stumbled upon Hagar who's speaking with an angel, the angel of the Lord in the desert after she's been booted from her home. You know, whatever example it is. When we see people speaking with angels, which is incredibly rare, by the way, in Scripture. Amen. This isn't on every other verse. This isn't even once per book. But when we see people speaking with angels, which is incredibly rare, guess what languages were used? Human languages. Genesis 16, 7 to 8, 1 Kings 13, 18, Zechariah 1, 9, Matthew 1, 20, Acts 11, 13, Hebrews 2, 2, Revelation 5, 2 on and on and on taking it further when we see angels speaking with other angels and with even God himself in heaven what languages do we see displayed what languages are they using human languages 1 kings 22 19 to 22 job 1 6 to 12 job 2 1 to 6 psalm 82 1 to 8 the communicatory mode is human languages everywhere in Scripture. There's never any example of anything other than human language. Now, let's say for the sake of argument that angels have languages. Let's just say for the sake of argument they do. If this is true, they would be human languages because that's all we ever see them speaking in Scripture. It's it. There are no... There are, literally no examples of angels speaking to people, to other angels or to God in something other than human languages. It is always glossa over and over and over. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Every time, glossa. Since glossa, tongues, always refers to human language, Old Old Testament or New Testament. And since angels have no mouths, no tongues, no languages of their own, doesn't mean they can't speak, but they don't walk around with their own special languages. Paul could not have been promoting angelic tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. What he was actually doing there is using a potent combination of anthropomorphic language and hyperbole to drive home a certain point. Anthropomorphic language is language that contains features that pertain to human beings, things we understand, like speaking in tongues or languages. Hyperbole has to do with exaggerating to the point of where you literally, you can't take something literally. He's just gone way above and beyond. Like if I were to say that when I was in high school, I had a 67 Chevy fleet-side pickup. If I were to say to you it was faster than the speed of light, You would know that it was fast, but you would also know that I'm using hyperbole. Now, if I were to tell you that uh, I didn't have a driver's license when I drove it around town, and it broke down on McHenry during cruising, and I left it there and never saw it again, that would not be hyperbole. That would be reality. (laughs) It's a huge difference. Bye. I'm not going to jail. And back then, I think you went to jail for that. Today, it's like, eh, you know what? Just put your trash out on Tuesday. You'll be okay. What he's doing is he's using anthropomorphic language, language that the Corinthians would understand by talking about speaking and tongues, which is languages, and he's using hyperbole. It just has to do with exaggerating. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13 here, he's really beginning to illustrate the importance of love in all we do. In 1 Corinthians 13:1, he speaks anthropomorphically. He says, if I speak... The Corinthians are like, I know what speaking is. That's anthropomorphic language. That's human language. I I, I know what that means. So he uses an anthropomorphic analogy. If I speak, and then he switches to hyperbole, in the tongues of angels. Okay, His point is that... If I had the ability to speak in, let's say, let me go really high here. Let me aim really high above us human beings. Let's say angels have a language of their own. We know angels are superior to us. We know they're smarter than us. We know that they can travel in ways that we can't. Uh, They get to Reno in five seconds. Uh, We know they can do things that we cannot do. They are superior to us in every way. Let's say for the sake of argument that they have their own languages that they speak. This is hyperbole. Let's say that angels have their own tongues. And if I had the ability to speak in them, here's the point. But if I do it without love, then it's hip hop in heaven. A noisy gong, clanging cymbal. By the way, gongs and cymbals were used in pagan worship in Corinth. Paul doesn't pull abstract ideas. He pulls from the context. He is saying that if we use our spiritual gifts... And serve one another without love. It is an annoying noise in the ear of God. Like the gongs and cymbals of pagans worshiping their idols. That is the point. If the conclusion we draw from this amazing verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, is that angelic tongues must exist. We have not only misunderstood the meaning of glossa, but we have completely missed the apostle's point, which he reiterates just a little bit down in verse 13, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, he reiterates the whole point of his argument, but the greatest of these is love. You've just missed it if you think that he's promoting the idea of an angelic language. You've missed that. you missed the meaning of glosa, which always means human languages. And uh, just as an encouragement to those who think this, they need to do some really heavy study and develop their theology of angels because they do not understand what they are, how they communicate, how they don't have bodies, how they're not like humans. And then lastly, if you challenge today's defenders of these non-human tongues, they might take you to Acts chapter 19, verse 6. It says, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in glossa, tongues, and prophesying. Uh, the defenders of the non-human tongues, the angelic or prayer secret prayer language, these sorts of things, they call what happened here in this text the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like a special anointing of the Holy Spirit that produces secret tongues and angelic tongues in the one who's being, the ritual is being performed over. Now, this is a very recent development, no older than the beginning of the 20th century, by the way. This is not predate 1906. Maybe it does in some small recluse circles, but this idea of Paul was not baptized. They were not being baptized by the spirit in belief or regeneration. They were being baptized through an anointing where they received these gifts. This is how it's proclaimed. And this interpretation runs into just a plethora of problems. First, the Greek word for tongues is our old friend, "glossa," <laughs> which always means human languages. Always means it. A person person that receives this gift does not have the ability to speak in gibberish. They do, but it's not from the Spirit. So this is human languages again and again and again. It has to be human languages. Amen, brother, (laughs) sister. I don't know who said that back there. There's a munchkin. Second If the other appearances of glossa in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 10, verse uh, 46, if in every example of glossa in Acts refers to human languages, how can Acts 19.6 be different? (laughs) Anyone bother to ask that question? You've got it meaning human languages everywhere, and all of a sudden in this isolated text, it refers to angelic languages or secret prayer languages? Do people not understand the laws of hermeneutics and the way biblical interpretation works? No, they don't. The first rule of biblical hermeneutics is that scripture interprets scripture. If a Greek noun is repeated in similar contexts, like where people are speaking in tongues or languages, the meaning will be the same over and over and over. It's not going to all of a sudden take on a different meaning Glossa cannot refer to human languages when it means, it cannot refer to non human languages when it means human languages in all of the preceding or surrounding verses. Well, it's supernatural. Right here it means something else, but over here in these other 192 instances it means this. Now, the broader context of the entire book of Acts, along with the even broader context of the entire Bible, will not permit any sort of interpretation, isolated interpretation like this. So, firstly, you've got glossa, it's human languages, not secret languages, not angelic languages. Secondly, you have the same meaning of that Greek word everywhere. It can't mean something else here. The laws of hermeneutics will not allow it. Third, there is such a thing as baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There is, it does exist. This is what they argue for, but their version is different. It may be defined as that work whereby the spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation, the moment of belief, the moment of conversion. That is baptism of the spirit is when the spirit comes upon somebody and regenerates them and makes them a new creature that loves God. And this Real biblical baptism of the Holy Spirit. The other one's an imposter, by the way. The real version of it was predicted by John the Baptist, Mark 1.8. It was obviously predicted by Jesus before he ascended, Acts 1.5. There are no examples in Scripture where baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to something other than what was just described. There is no ritual we can perform to make it happen. It only occurs, or it occurs only when the Holy Spirit possesses a spiritually dead sinner. And the sign that accompanies it is not speaking in non-human or human tongues, but a changed life. He or she comes alive for the first time in Christ. Ephesians 2.5, we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, but we have been raised with Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's regeneration. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. The theological term for baptism of the Holy Spirit, the true biblical version, is regeneration. If baptism of the Holy Spirit produces non human tongues in believers, why don't the vast majority of believers speak in these non human tongues? Has anyone asked that question? I guess the rest of us have been left out. And they will say it's because you need to go through the ritual. Interestingly, the only people who claim to speak in non-human tongues are those who interpret scripture in a way that supports that idea. They just twist the scripture. I suppose this particular spiritual gift of non-human languages is given only to those who possess and practice a certain type of biblical hermeneutic, a way of interpretation. To those who don't interpret that way, it's just plainly not given. Is that how this gift operates? Oh, it's given by the Spirit to those whom he's supposed to give it to. By the way, this particular hermeneutic that ends in non-human languages, false tongues, it's been absent from nearly 2,000 years of church history, theology, and orthodoxy. Did you know that? There's records of it throughout the time of church history, but they've never been included in the church. It's the rogue groups. got to, just wrapping up, I got a letter the other day from a guy who's, you know, he's trying to warn local pastors. You know, me and other guys, I'm sure others got this thing, and he's trying to warn local pastors. And he wrote in all caps, like Dave on band, Um, but, but Dave would never say this, right? Dave's like, this is mean, look at this. I'm just kidding. Dave's not mean. But he wrote this, and Dave would never say this, but this is what this guy wrote. Like, the whole letter, I have the letter here. Here goes my pen. The whole letter is written in regular caps. Okay? It's not just normal, but there's a couple places where it's like, listen to me now. Right here. He says this in all caps. Without baptism of the Holy Spirit, what he's talking about here, this thing where you get the tongues and all that, without this baptism, believers will not endure the coming persecution. If you don't go through this ritual and receive the Holy Spirit in a different way than you did when you first believed, if you don't go through this and then then show how it's manifested in you by shouting out Hindu First century Corinthian gibberish. You're not going to make it through the things that are common because they're common. You won't, you won't make it unless you get this ritual performed. And I'm like, how much is it? It's $29.95 down at Pep Boys. <laughs> no, what this is, is this is a scare tactic from a man who does not understand his Bible. I, I mean, let me, let me just be honest. I appreciate his zeal. I appreciate his concern and probably love for others in ministry. I do. But I worry about his ignorance. When he says we pastors need, what he says we need does not exist. Not according to this. However, there is one who will help me and help you and help other pastors, and help other believers endure persecution. It is is God the Father who holds his people safely in his all-powerful hands, John 10, 29. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who has sealed us for the day of redemption and who guarantees our heavenly inheritance that we will not only cross the finish line, but receive what God has promised to us. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 30. There is no post-conversion baptism of the Holy Spirit there are no secret andor angelic tongues. There is only one baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there is only one glossa human languages.